with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, Let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and are you going there again? Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble, because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in night, he stumbles, because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died, and for your sake I am glad that I was not there, so that you may believe. But let us go to him. So Thomas, called the twins, said to his fellow disciples, Let us also go that we may die with him. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give, that he will, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives, believes in me, shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. 
When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. This is the word of the Lord. In seminary, there were a ton of classes, um, a lot of practical things as well, learning how to exposit the word of God and then teach it or preach it to other people. It's exciting stuff called hermeneutics. Can you say hermeneutics? Hermeneutics Hermeneutics and homiletics. Homiletics, okay. But along with that, as that's often viewed as like the role of like the preacher to like know what the Bible says and then share that with other people, they had either classes or at least parts of classes, sections on other parts of the role of a pastor. And one of those chunks of things was like the kinds of special services that you do from time to time, like weddings, baby dedications, and funerals. Now, my, my first several years while I was in seminary and then the first few years afterward, I had the privilege of ministering almost predominantly with college students. So there were a ton of weddings. There were occasionally baby dedications, and it was a blast. And I knew eventually my first funeral that I'd have to officiate would eventually come. And at that time, living in South Carolina, I assumed it would be like one of the many octogenarians who had faithfully served our church for decades. And then I lived here. And the first funeral that I officiated was for the infant son of some very dear friends. He passed after just eight days in ICU. And I remember burying him on a, it was a cold, rainy, just gnarly day in May. So next month he would be seven years old. Instead, he's been gone seven years. We're talking about people and things that Jesus encountered during his earthly ministry. And one of those things that he encountered in this longer story that we read this morning was the death of one of his own dear friends. And I know as I say that, that, that death is a topic that as, I don't know, as uh, healthy, civilized, progressive Americans, we don't tend to think about a lot. We don't tend to look forward to that moment and think about um, the, the, the brevity of our own life. And I will say, as we talk about this, it's not my goal this morning, okay, to like paralyze you with fear. It's certainly not to get anybody worked up or shock you with some kind of fire and brimstone death message. Because what we see in this text is that Jesus himself does something very different than that. He stares death in the face and he offers this unbelievable hope that I want to look at you with you this morning. So we've got five points. I know I sent our worship team four, but um, as I actually got down to writing this, I added a fifth. By the way, I am aware of a wager out there that I cannot alliterate something with the letter Q. Challenge accepted, but not for this morning, okay? Yeah, yeah, sorry. Here's, here's what John's going to show us about death, okay? You, got, you do have five Ps here, okay? We're going to talk about the pain, the paradox, the power over, the promise, and the price. Point one, 
the pain. Every funeral I've attended has given me a front row seat usually to the pain of death. And I've been at a number of funerals where I knew just very stoic family members or close friends in a church and just seen them like weeping inconsolably. And that's part of what we encounter in the text is just the reality of the pain of the death of a brother, a friend, um, someone that they grew up in this small town of Bethany together, that together this family is experiencing grief, they're experiencing heartache, like that gnawing empty pain of, of someone is gone and there's that sense of loss and that sense of finality. And culturally, if you don't know this, the Jews, actually, if you had any means at all, you would hire professional mourners to come to your home upon the death of a family member, and they would mourn with you for seven days after the death of a loved one. So part of this, when Jesus comes a number of days later, and there are all these people in the house mourning, that would not just be friends and family members. That, that would have been some of these professional mourners who are just sitting there and just reacting to the grief and the pain that was experienced upon the death of, in this case, Lazarus. Uh, I think it's interesting, there, there's a little detail here in the text that when Jesus does come, you'll notice he lets both Mary and Martha speak to him first which was also a cultural thing. You didn't speak to someone. You didn't initiate a conversation with someone who was grieving the pain of the death of a loved one. You allowed them to speak first, and then you responded. And you see Jesus kind of honoring that pain and that grief. But there's something very important that I want to point out here. So in, in verse 24, and we'll, we'll jump around here this morning. But in verse 24, you note that Martha knows, Martha believes that her brother will rise again. And she says, like, on the last day. So at the end of time, as we know it, this is what Jews believed. There was no resurrection in real time, no individual resurrection. But they believe at the end of time, like, God's going to sort through all the dead and basically say, okay, who trusted Yahweh and, and who didn't? And they're, they're raised to life and they're raised to reward or they're raised to some kind of judgment. And so she's expressing that. And what's important to notice here is that faith and grief coexist. And Jesus does not rebuke that. He doesn't say, dry your eyes, stop crying, suck it up. Why can't you just believe that things will eventually be okay? And I love that, that Jesus is there and he's like, look, I know you trust me. But the pain is there. The grief is there. You'll see here in a moment that, that Jesus himself is weeping, not just because other people are weeping, but because he feels the pain and the grief and the loss of a dear friend. And I, I want to just pause here with this point about pain. And I'm not intending to be macabre at all, but again, we just don't think about this as very civilized people who have a million different ways of of pushing death out to the margins. And I think part of, what, um, part of what COVID has done to us in two years is that most of you actually know someone like pretty closely, family member or a friend or a coworker or a neighbor who actually passed away from one thing, from COVID. And it pushes it back to the center. Um, and the reality is most of us here in this room either have or will bury our parents. 
Like the people that are responsible for bringing us life, we will put them in the ground one day. If you're married, one of you will likely bury the other. Some of you, tragically, because this is how the world is, will have to bury your own children. And I want to just pause on this first point and just help you understand that when Jesus encounters death, he's not in your face, he's not rebuking you for the pain that you feel, for the grief that you experience, for the weightiness of that, for sometimes the hopeless feeling of that. But I would point you to what the Apostle Paul says later in 1 Thessalonians 4.13, where what he says is, don't grieve as those who have no hope. And what he's, what he's prohibiting, what he's cautioning against is not grieving, but a, but a hopeless despair that you've given into. But this pain, this first point, is reality, and Jesus doesn't rebuke it. Okay? Now, the paradox, this point two. And, and interestingly enough, a lot of this text settles in this place of paradox. And I'll, I'll show you what I mean. There are kind of four or five things here. Number one, I want to point out that Jesus is not in a hurry to prevent death. Verse five. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer where he was. You don't see this frenzied heart of Jesus like getting worked up of like, oh no, if he's sick, I better drop everything and race over there and prevent him from getting any worse. He almost seems casual about the fact that his close friend has some kind of deadly illness or disease. And you see this in the words of Martha and then Mary. First in verse 21, they say the same words. Martha runs out to meet him. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Later, Mary comes out to him. Verse 32, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Verse 37, then the whole crowd, including family and friends and villagers, some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? And, and what's the answer to the kind of the rhetorical question? Yes, he could have. He could have raced there. He could have gotten there ahead of death and said, not on my watch, but he didn't. So he's not in a hurry to prevent it. And then secondly, he almost downplays its seriousness in a couple places. Verse 4, you see him telling his disciples when they're like, hey, our friend is ill. And he says, verse 4, uh, you know, don't worry. This illness does not lead to death. And then verse 11, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I will go and awaken him. So it doesn't sound like Jesus is wrestling with this anguish of, oh, no, he's died. And there's this finality. You see him like suppressing how serious and how painful, how final this is. But then verse 35, I mentioned he weeps over it. He is personally moved with pain and grief and that sense of loss. But then this is kind of where it gets really interesting. Verse 33, look at this with me. It says, and this is as he's, he's talked to Mary and Martha now. Now he's headed off to the tomb. And it says, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And then in verse 38, five verses later, we read again, then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. And I want to just pause there and show you that this, the two English words, deeply moved, are the translation of one Greek word 
that, that doesn't just mean like, oh, I'm moved, like something inside me, you know, moved. And you're like, oh, that was touching. No, the, the word, and especially the root word of what we're reading here is actually the idea of snorting with anger. And it was used of horses, like in battle, when you just, you hear a horse get all lathered up and worked up and there's this frustration and, and they just snort through their nostrils. And that's the word that's used of Jesus as he's headed to the tomb of his friend. Not just grief, not dismissive in his attitude, but snorting with anger. And then this word uh, or this idea of being greatly troubled was a word that like when you would put a pot on the fire and that water would heat and then start to roil, that's the word of like that, that roiling, tumultuous water that's disturbed, that's troubled, that's agitated. So he's feeling all that. And um, to summarize for you what I just said, this is the paradox. It's like he's not in a hurry to prevent death. He downplays how serious it is. He knows that he has power over it, and he knows I'm about to raise him from the dead, and yet he weeps, and yet he's angry. And I want to revisit that idea of anger for a moment. You know, do you think Jesus, when it's like he's, he's storming off to the tomb, snorting with some kind of agitation, some kind of anger, who's he mad at? Is it like, geez, what's the problem with these sisters, you know? Like, I'm here. They should be good. And you already see his interaction with each of them, how, how tender, how gentle, how kind it is. He's not mad at the sisters. He's not mad at Lazarus, like how could you go, you know, around those people and catch that illness and whatever. The, the idea here that we read in the text is that Jesus is angry at death itself. And he's angry at death. He's snorting with anger because I think this is what Jesus is thinking as he storms off to the tomb. It's like, this is not how the story was supposed to go. Not that, that Lazarus made some unique mistake that inserted this into his story. He's just like death, the whole idea of decay and entropy and pain and death is not the story that God the Father, since before the beginning of time, that's not the story that he was writing. And Jesus is angry. And I love this complexity, this, this nuance in the personality, in the heart of Jesus, where he can simultaneously be sympathetic with grief and yet also indignant at death itself. And you know those mix of emotions if you're a parent. Others of you can kind of apply this in different ways. But don't you as a parent, you very often, you tell your kids, like, don't do certain things. You know, I have to stop the boys all the time. It's like, okay, we can see this escalation of things going back and forth. So it needs to stop or one of you is going to get seriously hurt. And then they go ahead and escalate it or, you know, jump off the top of the house or whatever it is that you just told them not to do. And there's like a serious injury and there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. And simultaneously as a parent, you feel angry. Like, why didn't you just listen? And you feel a genuine sadness. It's not this put-on sadness of like, oh, I'm going to pretend like I care because you're hurt and your bone is sticking out of your arm. No, you, like you, you really feel that grief, but also the frustration of like, why? This isn't the way it was supposed to go. And I'm just suggesting that Jesus feels something like that, that paradoxical mix of emotions. Um, by the way, still talking about paradox, look back at five and six, and I, hopefully this hit you as Edith was reading through this. It says, Jesus loved Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. 
This is when he's first gotten news that, that Lazarus is sick and it's serious. And they're like, come, you should come. Jesus loved Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. I mean, is that weird? It's, it sounds like a complete oxymoron. It, you're like, this contradiction of like, well, if you love them, then you would go to them. You would be with them. You would prevent this. And it's like, no, because he loved them, he didn't go right away. And then verses 14 and 15, you have something similar where Jesus tells the disciples, Lazarus has died. Okay, this is the first time he just says it plainly. Okay, he's not sleeping. He's not sick. He died. And he says, and for your sake, I'm glad I was not there so that you may believe. And again, that sounds weird to us. It sounds like a complete self-contradiction of like, wait, he died and you're glad for our sake that you weren't there? And, and, and they're like, Jesus, how is deliberate delay and distance a sign of love? Because this, this doesn't sound like the Jesus we know, and it's suggesting there's something else, something bigger that Jesus wants his friends to see and to experience. And that's point three, the power over. Um, so we know the end of the story. We just read it. If you'd never heard that story before, um, now you've heard it. So you understand kind of the punchline is that, that Jesus has some kind of authority, some kind of power over death itself. And I, I want to unpack that for a couple moments. First of all, let's see that the exercise of Jesus' power is phenomenal. It's incredible. Okay? Healing someone who is deathly ill, that's That's amazing. Okay, and I know a number of you in our church are in the medical community. Okay, and, and what God gives you, in a sense, the, the power to steward, to, to restore health to people who are very, very sick, even people who are on their deathbed, but to, to bring them back kind of from the brink where all their vital signs are, are totally messed up, not at all where they should be, that's impressive. You know what's even more impressive is resuscitating someone who their heart stopped. And you can do that within a few minutes or if they've like fallen through the ice and their body cooled to a very, very low temperature, you may be able to do that for, I don't know, a couple hours or something like that. But Jesus isn't doing something impressive. He's doing something impossible. And that's why the text here says he waits four days and the sisters recognize it when he's going to the tomb and he's like, roll the, you know, roll the stone away. And they're like, uh, let's not go there because his body has already begun to decompose. And in that culture, they would have like tightly bound the body. There would not be a casket, but there would be these linen strips and then kind of spices woven into those strips and packed around the body so that some of that smell of just the decay and the decomposition would not be quite as awful. And it was a way to respect the dead. And they're saying, Jesus, it's been four days. There's already decomposition. And what Jesus does here, and why I say his power is phenomenal, is that he decides to reverse the irreversible. And we need to understand that's what his power is doing. He's reversing the irreversible. And I want to just pause there, and I want to, like, I'm not trying to just turn this in a, into a, a metaphor for anything going on in your life, but is there something right now that is seemingly irreversible in your life? 
we are like, that ship is sailed. This relationship is beyond repair. There was an opportunity, but I'm past that opportunity. It will never come back. Or, or maybe something in your life is, is broken in a way you're like, it is irreversibly broken. My kids do that too. They like break something in a thousand little pieces and they're like, it's, it's okay, I'll put it back together. And you, you know as an adult looking, like, looking at that, you're like, okay, some things like, oh, the handle broke off the teapot. We can glue it back on with super glue, but there's stuff that is irreversibly broken and you're like, it's, it's done with its usefulness or it's irreversibly worn out and decayed. Maybe an opportunity with work or your vocation or the dream school or I, I could go on and on with things that you're like, it is past the point of no return. And I'm not telling you what God will do, but I am telling you what God can do. And that is like through a story like this, he's, he's trying to show us like my power is so infinite. My power is so ultimate. My power is so absolute there is no other power that can stop my power, and that's what I mean by phenomenal. Okay? Second thing we observe about Jesus' power is the exercise of Jesus' power is also personal. I said before that Jews believed in this resurrection at the end of time, like what, what Martha's confessing in verse 24 is like, yes, I know at the end of time that Lazarus will rise in the last day. But what Jesus says in that next verse is so important. When she's like, yeah, yeah, I know he'll rise. I trust that he will rise. He was a follower of Yahweh. But Jesus says, verse 25, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. And what he's saying is resurrection isn't something that's just baked into the story somehow where it just inexorably happens at some point in time just kind of on its own, inevitably. He's saying resurrection is a person, and that person, as Martha then confesses in verse 27, is Jesus, she says, the Christ, the Son of God. And I just, I take this opportunity to remind you again that, that Jesus Christ is not his first and last name. Like, Jesus is his name. The Christ is literally the Messiah, it's, it's a word for like the anointed one of God, the one who is king, the one who is prophet, the one who is priest, the one that God sends from his side to come and ultimately redeem his people. And this is like, this is an incredible confession, okay? We were, we were kind of down on Martha a few weeks ago. Like, why are you so busy doing all this stuff for the master instead of sitting at his feet, being devoted to him, being present? Um, she learned something because she's like, Wow, yeah, I believe you are the Messiah, the Son of God. And Jesus doesn't simply assert this identity. I am the resurrection and the life. He proves his identity by going to the tomb of Lazarus. In verse 43, he just says, Lazarus, come out. And this is so incredible. It's like that Old Testament story of the prophets and they're taken to the, you know, the valley of dry bones, like bodies that died and decayed. And now there's no flesh, there's no organs, there's no tissue. And God, the spirit of God moves in power and stitches these lives back together again. Like Jesus with three words is reversing the irreversible. He has this personal power. And I want you to notice, too, when he just says, Lazarus, come out, he's not calling on a higher power. He's not praying like, God, please show up. 
and do this thing. There's, there's not an incantation or the recitation of a formula. The king just speaks. And death has to let go because the enemy is defeated. Okay, that's the personal power of Jesus. And then finally, I want to show you that the exercise of Jesus' power on this point is purposeful. So let me show you a few verses and then kind of summarize what we're reading here. So verse 4, Jesus says, This illness is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Verse 15, he then says, and for your sake, I'm glad I was not there so that you may believe. Then verse 40, he says, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? Then verse, verse 42, now he's praying to the Father and he says, I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. And then verse 45 Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and seen what he did, believed in him. And what all those verses, all those, all those key words and concepts that you see repeated over and over in the verses that I just read are showing you the purpose of Jesus' miracles. Jesus isn't just like, bring, like, there, there's a miracle. That was cool. You saved the jetliner from crashing into Yankee Stadium. That's so cool. You're so powerful. No, what he's showing you is when I exercise my miraculous power, I'm basically doing two things. And I'll call one a doxological purpose. You know the doxology, praise God from whom all blessings flow. The doxological purpose of every miracle and the power of Jesus is I want you to be stirred in your heart to naturally, spontaneously react with praise to God. Like we see his power and the hair stands up on our arms and the back of his, our necks and we're like, awesome God. So there's this doxological purpose. He's like, I'm going to allow my friend to pass away and bring him back to life so the hair stands up on the back of your necks and you're like, what just happened? Who is this Jesus that I could give my life to follow him? So there's a doxological purpose. There's also a discipleship purpose. And you see it here in a number of these verses that the discipleship purpose of the exercise of Jesus' power is I want to strengthen your faith. You believe but I want you to trust so deeply that nothing in this world can rattle your faith, your confidence that God will do what God does, including the death of a loved one. You are so deeply entrenched in your trust because of what you've seen, because of what you've experienced, that you're like, wow, I believe more deeply and I'm more in love with you, God, than I was a week ago or a month ago or a year ago. And I think that's important that Jesus is never just using his power like haphazardly, capriciously, whimsically, aimlessly, but there's a purpose, not just zapping things for the sake of zapping things. And people are like, wow, okay, what was that about? But they're like, wow, praise the Father, praise the Son, praise the power of the Spirit at work through his life. I believe. That's what Jesus is doing. Now, furthermore, I want you to notice here the, the purpose or the nature of the miracles that Jesus does. To kind of paraphrase Tim Keller, um, he says, miracles are not a suspension of the natural order. They are a restoration of the natural order. 
So when, when Jesus does a miracle like healing a blind man or healing a lame person or opening the ears of someone who's deaf or reversing an illness or here like literally bringing someone back from the dead and stitching their body back together and breathing life into them again, when, when Jesus does something like that, he's not violating the laws of nature. He's actually restoring the original laws of nature including the fact that from the beginning, there was not supposed to be death. And, and, and things in our world with the laws of thermodynamics that we understand, everything's running down, everything's wearing out. There's entropy, there's breakage, there's decay. Um, we just had Ash Wednesday where a number of you were reminded and did this intentionally. Like we were made of dust and to dust we will return. But, but what Jesus is doing here is giving us a preview of the end of the story He's putting things back the way they were intended to be. Eyes were intended to see. Ears were intended to hear. Legs were intended to walk. Hearts were intended to, I was going to say breathe, but you know what I mean. Lives were intended to breathe and breathe in the spirit of God and know him personally. So that's what Jesus is doing with his power. Now the promise. Okay, and I want to I show you kind of like two sides of the promise. First of all, there's a negative promise. If you go all the way back to Genesis 3, there is, a, there is a negative and a tragic promise in Scripture that because of sin and because of the curse on sin, it's a promise. Things wear out and they break and people die. Okay? And God told Adam and Eve that before they disobeyed him about the fruit. He's like, if you do this, in the day that you do this, you will die, which doesn't mean like you take a bite and it's poisonous and you drop dead. It means you will experience the, the, the truest death, which is a separation from the father that you were meant to walk in intimacy with. That's death. Okay? So that's the negative part of the promise. But Jesus shows a very hopeful promise here. Verses 25 and 26, he says, essentially, he's like, because I am the resurrection and the life. Then look what he says afterward. He says, because that is true, whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live, and everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. So he's saying, if you believe in Jesus as Lord and Savior, only one of two things can happen to you. Either you will die and you will like, immediately live again, but in your final, eternal, like, resurrected state. Or he says, the, the idea of everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. The idea is if, if you're living when Jesus, like, bodily returns to this earth, you will never die. You just you get perfected on the spot. And that's an incredible promise that he's saying, basically, death is an interruption to the story, but it is not the last chapter. It is not a, a final destiny that when we say goodbye to someone on this side and we put them in the earth, we are saying goodbye. But that person's life is not actually over. They continue to live in Christ, okay? And, and this is what's so important is what Jesus is showing in like such a, a graphic, unmistakable, real-world miracle of resurrection is he's saying I have come to destroy every enemy that could destroy you. Like, you believe in me, and these enemies are all out to get you. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. I got that one too. I killed death. 
is what Jesus is showing us here in this text. And I think this is, this is an important balance, friends, because there are certain worldviews that are like, ah, death is an illusion, you know, and like it seems like we're dead. I mean, some of the same people would say it seems like we're alive, but how do we really know any of us? What if this is just a big dream and we're in the matrix or whatever, right? Um, and Jesus is like, no, death is not an illusion. It's real and it's painful. And we can acknowledge that as followers of Jesus. It causes us to grieve. But death doesn't have the final word. Death doesn't have the last laugh. Death may win the battle, but death doesn't win the war. Okay, that's the idea here. Now, one last thing, the price. So let's keep reading, okay? We stopped in verse 45. Let's, let's keep going for just a moment. What happens? So verse 45, Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees, those are the religious leaders, and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. I mean, like, God forbid. It's just, this is insanity. But this is, we're reading the word of God. Everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So get this, from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. What was the price for Jesus to travel to a town who's just over the hill from Jerusalem where the religious elites already despise him and want him dead? Now he's brought someone back to life Dozens or hundreds of people could verify the fact that, like, no, we were there when his body was wrapped. We know that he was dead. We, we smelled the smell. We, we know what was happening. Jesus brought him back to life. And you would think that the religious leaders who are, like, searching the Old Testament for, like, who is this Messiah? And when will he come? And what will he be like? And how do we follow him? And then the Messiah comes, and he demonstrates, I am the true one sent from God who have authority over death itself just to speak, come out of your tomb, and your body comes back together again. And they're like, yeah, we got to kill him. And this is so important. The next time we encounter linen cloths wrapped around a body in the Gospel of John, they're wrapped around the dead body of Jesus. Because in order for him to love Lazarus and Mary and Martha and that group of friends, in order to call him back out of death into life, Jesus had to go from life into death. And this is what he's doing, friends, to break that just unnatural. And we think of death as natural. It's unnatural because it's an aberration. It's an interruption to Jesus' story. It was not supposed to be there. But sin entered and death entered. And Jesus is like, I could let you go and just die and be separated from me. Or I could come and die. I could come and take the curse of death on myself and have linen 
strips wrapped around my body with spices and be placed in a borrowed tomb for three days. John 19, verse 40. He's in there, bound with linen cloths. You know what's cool, though? The next time you see linen cloths in the Gospel of John, and the only other time that this face cloth is mentioned again, chapter 20, verses 6 and 7, is like the linen cloths are in the tomb, and the face cloth is in the tomb, but something's missing, and that something is the body of Jesus. Because he has put death to death in his own body, and he has walked out of his own tomb, and he's now offering eternal life and real life to anyone who comes to him in repentance and faith. Okay, this is what we celebrate on Easter. This is what we celebrate every Lord's Day. Jesus came to earth, became one of us without ceasing to be God in order to live the life we should have lived and die the death we should have died and then triumph over death so that we can live forever. And friends, the reason that resurrection is free to you and me is because it was so costly to Jesus. Okay, so let me summarize. Four summary points. Number one, death is genuinely sad, but it is not this terrifying thing to just fight and avoid at all costs. That's part of what Jesus is saying when he's like almost this overly casual attitude toward death initially is he's like, it's not something to fight and avoid and be like, ah, anything I can possibly do to put it off another day because it's the most devastating thing that could ever happen. He's like, no, it's, it's really sad. It's really real. Grieve, weep for your loved ones. Feel the pain of their loss on this side. But it's not this terrifying thing to fight and avoid. Number two, death is an important reminder that our lives and God's story are broken by sin. And it's okay to see that God is angered by death because he's saying it was never supposed to be this way. This is an interruption to my story by the adversary who comes and plants seeds of death. So we can think that every time a loved one passes, is like we can feel a little bit of that anger along with the grief of like it wasn't supposed to be this way. But third summary point, Jesus has ultimate personal authority over that death. He broke the curse by taking the curse, dying on a cross and rising from the dead three days later. So as as you're sitting there and that loved one is in the casket or you're putting them in the ground and you feel that grief and you feel that anger, you also feel this hope. But Jesus overcame. And then finally, I'll say it like this, it is not death to die in Christ. And that's part of what Jesus is saying with all this paradox, it is not death to die. It would be death to die apart from Jesus, just like living every day for your pleasure, your God of your own life, you're running your own life, you dismiss the king who came to lay down his life to give you forever life, that would be death. But it is not death to die knowing, trusting, hoping in the one who said, I am the resurrection and the life. And if you know that one, if you love that one, you have his assurance. You will experience joy and peace and friendship. Like for you, it's uninterrupted forever. So let's just remember kind of this paradoxical story of the day that Jesus encountered death. He, in one sense thought less of it than we do. 
In another sense, at the very same time, he thought more of it than we do. But he was the ultimate solution. He was the ultimate overcomer. And in him, we have this forever hope.